Hey everyone, this is Graham from Guru Focus. If you haven't met me already, I run our value investing live series on YouTube. The podcast you're about to listen to was originally recorded live in front of an audience, so our guests may make references to charts and PowerPoint slides that you won't be able to see here. If you want to check out their full presentation, including those slides, or join our next live stream, click on the link down in the description. Now back to the podcast. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Value Investing Live. Today, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Thomas Russo, partner at Gardner Russo & Gardner. He joined the firm as a partner in 1989 and is a graduate of Dartmouth College and Stanford's business and law schools. Thomas has overseen $3 billion as a general partner of Sempervic Partners and Sempervic Partners Limited Partnerships, along with overseeing funds in discretionary, individually managed accounts for individuals, trusts, and endowments. His investment philosophy emphasizes return on invested capital, principally through equity investments. His approach to stock selection stresses two main points, value and price, and he looks for companies with strong cash flow characteristics where large amounts of free cash flow are generated. As always, to those of you out in the audience, please feel free to post your questions throughout the presentation, as I see you're already doing, and I'll go ahead and hand things over to Thomas now to kick off the presentation. Thank you, Graham. Thank you so much for the chance to visit with your Guru Focus subscribers. Uh, for those of them who showed up, uh, I, I, I would be perfectly understanding if you do, because today's one of those days where you have to pinch yourself to, for the good fortune of being in the investment business. Um, one of those, one of those memorable days uh, that we get um, uh, from time to time and where where coming to Guru Focus is the right thing to do. Staying at your screen and trading around today may not be. Um, thank you for the uh, nice introduction. And um, uh, you know, I'd say uh, before jumping in, there, there are two points I'd make. Um, markets in general today ask of investors that they commit on a couple of continuum. You had mentioned price uh, versus uh, value is one of our continuum. Recently, it's growth versus uh, uh, value investing and domestic, call it the United States versus international. And uh, we, I and we at Gardner Russo Gardner are squarely in the camp of of value and global. Now we we qualify that by saying value is entirely dependent upon growth. Without without uh, growth, you won't have value over time, and it, it has to do with with, with the uh, growing. Streams of future cash flows get discounted back by the risk-free rate, and to get growth in the underlying investment, you do need value. You do need to have uh, you have to have uh, growth, uh, which is um, which is the value that we look for in our investments. Um, so, I came upon this. Um, uh, I, I also gather from what Graham said that you do have two questions in queue already. And and I must say that's reassuring because those are questions that my conduct don't, uh, do not um, um, arise. But you will have a chance to ask, and I would invite you to ask at any time during the conversation questions that might have a particular uh, relevance to what what you do or what you think about. So I do invite an interruption. Um, um, so I I like to start greeting my investors by just a story about my own background and, and my great fortune uh, of starting out as an investor um, uh, in the early 1980s. The, the values were compelling. And uh, at, at the business school, I had the great pleasure of, of hearing Mr. Buffett speak to our 
investment management class in 1982. And it really, his comments uh, framed several issues that have defined my investing. Um, the first was that, um, that you can't make a good deal with a bad person. Um, and that's about agency costs. And by the time I saw him in 1982, he had, he had, interacted with enough managers to say that it protests notwithstanding of their good character without good character you can't get you can't get returns because the agent that you trust will serve their own interests not yours and it's rife throughout the world of uh, equity investing the, dis the 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 disappointments of investments that didn't flourish for lack of people doing things because uh, in some instances not doing something may be better off for the manager than doing something which is better off for the owner um, we will talk a lot about that during the, during this hour. Um, and the second point he made was that the government only gives you one break as an investor, and that's the non-taxation of unrealized gains. They actually give you a second break, which is that you can deduct your losses. But that's not a particularly ambitious uh, career to follow. But clearly, if you can find businesses that um, allow you to um, uh, uh, reinvest their their cash and their and, and 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 behind their brands and their and their products and geographic expansion or adjacent product categories. If you can reinvest, then you'll have the ability for the increasing value of the business that you reinvest in to pull along with it the increase in the share price. It'll just derive from the benefits that come from reinvestment. If you have a business that warrants reinvestment, now not all businesses do. Um, when we saw Mr. Buffett uh, speak, um, he actually was going through a period of time when, when there was a transition in what, what was meant by value. And value was considered to be the margin of safety. Um, it always has been and remains so. But it was defined differently. Um, before, around the time I, I met Mr. Buffett, uh, the margin of safety was based on price paid. Um, if you bought a $0.50 cent dollar bill, you'd know that you'd make money over time. It was just a question of how much time. If it, if it closed in the gap the first year, you'd make a 100% return. If it closed in the seventh year, you'd make a 10% return. The rule of 72 can explain going forward. Uh, but, but without growth and the intrinsic value, um, um, you were encouraged to, um, to close the discount quickly, pay a lot of taxes, and move on and find something else. But along the way, Having done that profitably and well for so long, he, he and his partners, Charlie Munger, came upon a company called Seas Chocolate, which really changed the way that they viewed the, um, the sweet returns uh, uh, from investing. And that was uh, within Seas, there was, a, there was a franchise. There is goodwill. There's economic goodwill. And, and, and so the margin of safety was no longer based on the price paid, only just price paid. But it was it was based in the case of C's on the ability for that business to grow both in chocolate counts and in pricing, and since the consumer treasured the brand C's, um, uh, Warren and and Mr. Munger learned through that investment of the virtue of having powerful brands as they convey to the owner price inelastic demand for the product. And so right out of Mr. Buffett's uh, starting comments, you have don't uh, choose your partners wisely because it's, it's hard to avoid agency costs. And second, um, uh, try to take advantage of the after-tax uh, benefits of, of non-taxation without, without the sale of your position. And, and third, um, 
to um, uh, uh, reinvest money so that you can get, you can grow your intrinsic value on a per share basis. Um, if you're going to uh, have the capacity to reinvest, um, let me just move this forward. Um, you have um, you have to have uh, businesses into which you can invest, and and uh, for me, uh, the business that I find most appealing have been global brands. Um, brands, as I said, is a, as a, a variable that um, that the consumer becomes quite loyal with, uh, gives you great pricing power. Um, so uh, the global aspect is 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 a ref reflection of the professor, at the Mr. M uh, Buffett's class, Jack McDonald who basically was an early internationalist. He, he, he um, had invested, for example, in 1963 in the very same sorts of, uh, of uh, Japanese holding companies that Mr. Buffett just invested $6 billion in. So they, they traveled the investment world together and Professor McDonald was very, very smitten by international investing. His idea was that 95% of the world lives in, uh, away from the US. And so you might as well broaden your reach as an investor and and, uh, and so that's where I have focused. And so I've focused on a career of looking for global brands that are of interest. Um, in the international markets, we pick up population growth, especially the emerging and developing markets. Um, you also are picking up disposable income growth. So for the first time, uh, 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 people who had no cash income are now increasingly finding work. Um, and with that, they have the spendable um, uh, currency, which they can do to purchase for the first time the brands that they had long watched uh, from a distance uh, through billboards and through the consumer of the um, uh, more prosperous members of their country. Um, and so brands mattered and global brands matter because the population growth demands more uh, and the brands have, have a long history. Hindustan Lever has been Unilever's Indian business for over a hundred years. Uh, Nestle's had a business, a very large business in India for over 50 years. In each case, the Indians adopt those companies as if they were their own. And so we have the ability in, 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 um, in uh, investing abroad of, of having a company that can serve a market where there might be 25 or 30 million new consumers each year coming into the market through population growth and through affordability. Um, when we invest in international companies, we also celebrate a couple of features unique to the international businesses. Um, one of them is that they uh, tend to have uh, a multi-global, uh, a, a global perspective that's very hard for Americans to, to share. Um, one way you can detect that is if somebody asked uh, you how uh, many foreign languages do you speak? Uh, would the likelihood that you'd answer four is pretty low, but if you are a senior executive at the Nestle, I can assure you the likelihood of four languages is quite high. Um, similarly, if I asked you a multicultural question, such as who's your favorite cricket player, you'd probably draw a blank stare because you probably have never seen cricket or don't know it exists. And in fact, for 1.7 billion people, it's one of the most important parts of their life. So. Um, when you think about the international companies that you work for, you think about the people who represent you and they're multicultural, they're multilingual, and hence, I think, effective as they move around in international waters. Um, uh, they also, importantly, don't have ma massive amounts of compensation through stock options. Stock options are really part of the part of the issue that Mr. Buffett referred to about um, uh, making a good deal with a bad person. 
stock options are corrosive when used to an excess. Um, initially, they, they partially align interests with equitizing your workers with a small incentive that that vests over time with um, with success as uh, the options can do. But over a long period of time, if the use of options becomes excessive, as I argue they have in the U.S., not so internationally, um, you end up having to worry as a manager far too much on a given price per share on a given day. Options are worth something on a given day. And, um, and so in order to maximize the likelihood that you will get the valuation that suits the, the um the, the, the needs of your own career arc, um, you will quite possibly um, take steps which may not optimize the long-term value of the company. You may, you may um, cut back on important um, investments in marketing and promotion and uh, to show better earnings per share. You may choose not to build new factories because you don't want the absorption of the fixed costs to burden near-term results. Anything that that would stand in the way of the shares, uh, you know, exceeding the option value when you when you um, uh, invest them, is, is something that may not mean anything whatsoever to the whole, the full owner of the same business. We see time and again opportunities not taken up by business leaders, who, if you were, if they were owners running the business just for themselves, they would surely pick up the opportunities. And the, and the real trade off has to do with timing. Um, uh, any time a business embarks upon a transformative investment program, whether it's new new brands, new geographies, brand extensions, um, there is going to inevitably be a terribly long period of time when the burden on reported income caused by those those reinvestments is quite quite high. And so, for for companies whose managements want to show smooth and steady income to satisfy Wall Street's clamor. Um, you will you will see an avoidance of those types of long-term minded investments because of the desire to shield their share price from the effect of burdens on income that's caused that can be caused by those types of investments. So um, you have you have this 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 reality. Um, the other aspect about the international businesses that we invest in that I think uh, uh, excites us is that the um, is that they so they typically are identified by investors around the world as serving the needs of the sort of tired old sclerotic uh, anemic businesses of Europe, um, and in in part they do, and in part there are businesses like that in Europe. Though the uh, common market has made it a far more rich and robust uh, world there than it was uh, historically, but but that said, um, you know when people look at investing in a company that's headquartered in in um, in Western Europe, they often think of the fact that there's workforce issues and demand issues and pricing issues that augur poorly to invest in, in, in Europe, and hence they, they, they tend to pay too little for that privilege. And we actually like that because we're buying businesses that we see possess great opportunity at prices that are discarded by investors who think of Europe as a source of selling, not purchasing of shares. And the difference is that we see within our portfolio companies, the international ones, the capacity to reinvest their free cash flow from mature markets into the developing emerging markets. And so we pay, I think, a lower price than we would if people fully valued the reinvestment component that exists within the uh, international uh, companies. And the last thing I'd say is that we actually end up uh, finding within the international markets um, uh, um, uh, management um, 
uh, who are more, more more often supported by the um, by the um, uh, families that founded the companies than we do elsewhere in the world, and and that leads to the the second. Uh, let me stop for a second. See if uh, Graham, you have any questions as I outline the way I have shaped our investment focus to global, uh, and 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 in, in a sense uh, uh, to traditional businesses, if you call those value, but it's really to global and to value. And any questions that may have surfaced thus far? Uh, it doesn't look like we have anything pertaining directly to what we've been talking about, but we do have a okay. couple couple international audience members saying hello from around the world as well. Hello. Nice to, see, nice to hear from you. Uh, and also, um, good fortune to you to live in the part of the world where I actually think the best returns are, are poised to, to, to um, um, arrive from. So the, the next thing you need is a manager. So it's great to have all the things I talked about that give you the capacity to reinvest. The next thing you really have to have is managements who have the capacity to suffer. Because they're going to be, if they're doing their job properly, building wealth for the long-term benefits of generations to come, um, they're going to be uh, taking steps today that only really serve to depress reported profits. And since so many investors key off of the reported profits uh, so sharply, um, that's something that that is not rewarded uh, by, by Wall Street. And so um, the managers, if they're going to dig deeply into their budget to put up new factories, um, you know, Nestle is one of our large standing uh, companies. In the midst of the uh, pandemic, they've invested a billion dollars this year. In, over the course of the last, this past year in um, Ralston Prina, the their world-leading uh, pet food company. And they've, they've done it not because it's going to help them today. In fact, it's going to burden the reported profits. Uh, they have to pay half a billion dollars for one, one uh, factory. Um, and it's going to uh, weigh on results, not add to them. But they know that once, once that factory is completed in 18, 24 months, that it will it will address a capacity constraint that exists because their business is doing so well, and and uh, and they'll do all of this uh, recognizing that there are periods when that activity will burden the income. At the start, it's because it's the startup expenses, but then when they come in with a full a fully uh, finished new factory, what they'll end up doing is pulling volumes from the um, over over capacity uh, factories that currently serve those markets. And you'll see a, a sharp drop off in the volume from existing factories, which uh, see the volume go to the new factory as it well should. Um, the new factory will run, run way below rated capacity by virtue of how, how just the amount they can draw from the existing factories isn't that great at the start. They'll be producing under, under rated capacity. The one that was overproducing to rated capacity was so a sharp decline and they'll, They'll show a massive uh, impact on operating profits because when you operate at an excess of, of rated capacity, uh, you've absorbed all your fixed costs, you, uh, you know, volumes ago and everything else at the tail end is pure, pure margin. And so, um, uh, but, but in each case, the startup expenses, then the, 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 the downturn in margin that takes place when, when the new capacity is, is pulling volume from other places means that uh, the manager who's, who's going to do this really has to be a believer in the fact that the, that the course, the right course is the long-term one. We call it um, have the ability to have the capacity to have some pain today for, for gains tomorrow. And we'll go through a couple of examples uh, of, of that. Companies that have been at the core of our portfolio 
since the mid 1980s. Every, uh, Nestle, Berkshire Hathaway, Brown Farman, um, uh, were all bought uh, in 1986 uh, because of the uh, capacity for those businesses to reinvest. And and and, and the remarkable thing is is uh, the most of those, I think all three of those have compounded their return for our investors at nearly 13% since, since the early 1980s. And it's my belief that having redeployed their capital, having reinvested the capital with an eye towards the, the very far future for all these years, they end up after that long run of, of performance, almost uh, 34 years worth, um, with brighter prospects today than even when we started with those investments and and uh, they haven't they haven't required uh, with Berkshire Nestle Brown Farman haven't required that we that we think of selling their shares because of the uh, way in which they've they've compounded the growth from those businesses let's see here All right, so we've gone over the capacity to reinvest and um, capacity to suffer. We've, we've reviewed that. Um, so, so what what our businesses need to managements of our businesses need to um, uh, um, um, unearth uh, are businesses that have great uh, white spaces uh, that have great. Um, addressable marketplaces so that uh, they can afford to be right once, to borrow a phrase from Mr. Buffett, by establishing a business that's in a market that's large enough that that they can have um, you know, sort of perpetual um, uh, returns from from their decisions as to what pond to fish in in the first place. And, uh, and so as you think about the white spaces, uh, let me just take a look here. I need to advance this. Um, a couple of a handful of areas that have been very productive for our investments have been uh, first of uh, the global payment systems, and and that's a business that we we invested in in the early nineteen uh, the early two thousand ten um, uh, uh, after the arrival of a of a remarkable uh, global business leader Ajay Banga, who was a vice chairman of Citibank, who we knew in city when, from our Citibank days. Um, it's interesting that the contacts we make in business um, uh, that we most respect are people who we stay in touch with over the years. They often surface in different companies, uh, and as such, they give us great signals that good things will follow. And few signaled more uh, uh, vociferously than Ajay Banga when he, he arrived at a relatively staid culture of, of MasterCard. Uh, and, and when he observed, when we first uh, uh, interacted thereafter, uh, he observed that 85% of the business in his region where he was focused on as the leader of, of MasterCard was still um, done through cash and, and, and checks. The credit card payment systems hadn't been installed and that his job was to convert the 85% to 100%, six times the size of his business simply by converting it. Um, and that was what he set out to do. But he, he, he built a team of, of extraordinary uh, PhDs who investigated all sorts of, of, um, of, uh, of uh, uh, pathways for expediting payment, of verifying payment, of, of uh, different forms of payment, different media, different joint ventures. And over the years, um, uh, his, uh, the business under Ajay Bang has grown sort of low teens, 13 plus percent a year in gross uh, dollar volumes. Um, and it converted with with the um, with uh, with the um, 
uh, high fixed cost nature of of the of the rails over which the business uh, runs, um, they're able to show massive increase in in um, in operating margin well beyond the thirteen percent growth in gross dollar volumes. They didn't report that extra extra uh, margin above the third uh, above um, uh, the thirteen percent sales growth. They didn't report that um, because they redeployed it back into the business almost from the start. Ajay declared that his job was to make his successor successor look good, and and so he never he never allowed the increased margin that came about because of uh, of uh, operating leverage um, to drop into the ba- into the uh, bottom line, but rather invested it, and so their operating margin was sort of mid. 50% and it stayed there, even though others in the business showed much higher margins because they were investing less heavily against their income statement. Um, and that business, that business um, has continued to grow. They've, they've grown through acquisitions as well. Um, they, they are, they are, um, uh, I think presented with challenges as a result of the um, uh, pandemic, as well as opportunities. The opportunities are interestingly in a couple of areas. One, um, one aspect of MasterCard that was intriguing was that um, uh, you know in, in the germaphobic world that we inhabit today, people don't want to sign credit card machines. They don't want to touch their pin debits. They don't want. They really want to have no engagement whatsoever with money because it's felt to be germ laden. And so um, it happens that MasterCard has just launched at this time a tap and go card that allows them to. Um, wave a card over a reader and, and without any contact. And so it, the business in contactless volumes for credit cards has just absolutely soared over the past uh, 18 months. Um, the other thing that, uh, that uh, has happened is that the vast amount of people who are underserved in digital commerce, um, uh, you know, as they as they migrated towards it due to store closings and lockdowns, um, and they decided to, to try to use the internet. Um, they had to get credit cards because you need one to ship, and so and so that's been a big tailwind for Mastercard recently. Um, and uh, and uh, you know the real the real headwind is increasingly the um, failure for global travel, which has not restored, and increasingly the competition from. Uh, very energetic fintech companies that either that the Mastercard, in many instances, partnered with or or looks to acquire or faces competition from going forward. So, but the global payment system uh, growing at um, mid-teens with with uh, seemingly endless refresh on the market not served gives them a great runway going forward. Um, we happen to own shares in uh, Richemont, the parent company of Cartier. We happen to own, uh, which is the world's leader in, in global jewelry. Eighty uh, percent of global jewelry is to this day still um, unbranded, and so with with uh, with Richemont, we are playing in the eighty the eighty percent market that is unbranded with with the leading brands, the the the, the Van Cleef and the uh, Cartier that that they own. Um, uh, as helping to drive the demand, uh, so um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway has a participation in through their um, through their Borsheim's uh, business, and uh, and 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 the, um, the the central belief in in jewelry 
is that it's considered to be somewhat cyclical. Um, and, and I believe it actually transcends cycles at some level because, you know, your child only turns 21 once you, you only have your 40th anniversary once, your 50th anniversary once. You have, you have ceremonial moments where cultures dictate what you do. And for someone to say that they have, uh, you know, the ability not to, uh, that there's a, an ability in the, in the uh, jewelry business, uh, to have it go, um, uh, to have it become cyclical. Um, they just haven't tried yet to explain to their son who turned 21 why he didn't get a Rolex watch or whatever it is that is traditional in the culture upon those those rites of passage. So I think more of that business is um, is, is ingrained and inevitable. And, uh, and, uh, and, and with the brands, Van Cleef and and Cartier uh, Richemont has uh, has really the the, the world's leader uh, leading two brands. Um, one other area of of, uh, of uh, enormous consumption where the with the companies that we own in this case Pardo Ricard and Braun Farman have businesses that the consumer would absolutely. Um, let me see that I didn't jump. Uh, yeah, here it is. Um, Pardo Ricard and Braun Farman. Uh, the consumer in this case would would covet. Uh, immensely, uh, um, it's the uh, area of global spirits. Um, let's see here, global premium spirits. Uh, 1.5 billion cases are consumed each year in China. It's a market that has a, a preference, a taste for premium Western spirits, uh, but but the market has not yet the sort of developed. I, it's a market that I've invested in since the early 1990s, and, and the same uh, story of opportunity exists today as did then. Um, but, the, but the reality is that you have uh, 1.5 million cases consumed a year, um, and Pernod Ricard with its Martel business and its Chivas business, Brown Farmer with Jack Daniels, um, they collectively, the Western companies that, uh, that we can choose to invest in collectively, sell about 4 million cases a year. So the market is is uh, fully 25, 25, 35 times bigger than the market that they currently address. Um, and, and their job in this case is simply to convert to, to um, Western brands uh, the, the consumption that has long been uh, traditional, deeply traditional in the case of China uh, and India uh, in, their, in those local brands. Um, it, the demographics favor this movement, um, and, and the growth in Western brands has favored this movement. Um, the demographics at the moment are such that both China and India are experiencing a growth of 25 million um, uh, legal-age consumers each year in their population. Uh, it, it's the baby boomer somehow going through the Chinese and the Indian, um, Indian markets. Um, uh, in China, in particular, that that cohort, the 21-year-old and up, um, happens to be lavished upon with monies from doting uh, grandparents because of the one-child policy. So, there, the market is quite well set up for um, uh, for the Chinese to begin to reach across the table for global leading uh, trademarks. Uh, and our portfolio companies in the spirits area are well well positioned, just like Richemont is well positioned. Forty one percent of Richemont's business um, has been with Chinese consumers up until very recently. It's it's been it's been uh, tested because of the pandemic. It almost you couldn't create 
something that was that made those businesses uh, more challenged. They've come out of the um, the the, uh, the downturn of, of uh, the second and early third quarter, and and their businesses are are restoring at a very fast clip. Uh, but you do have to be mindful in in the timing and the ownership of them, as as and if they're going into that uh, second that second lockdown. Um, the sub-Saharan beer business is another one that we've favored over the years. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's the white space. There are 400 million barrels of beer consumed in, um, in Africa a year. And only a hundred million of those are bottled, refrigerated and branded. Um, the governments, uh, so, um, uh, the rest, the, uh, 300 million that's not included in the bottle refrigerated branded, um, are all locally produced. They're locally produced typically in a, in a uh, village center. The, um, the, the, the liquid is relatively poor smelling. It's poor tasting. It's, uh, it's the ingredients are really quite difficult. And, and in many instances, they, they cause, they cause harm on consumers. And so countries really quite throughout Africa are, are quite um, uh, unhappy with that traditional business. And, and Heineken, SAB Miller, other companies have had a chance to get in, into that, uh, into that discussion and promise a newly, newly constructed beer that can be delivered with locally sourced sorghum and locally sourced um, cassava. That's inexpensive enough to allow the major brewers from the, around the world who do business in Africa to brew beers with less expensive ingredients, so much so that when combined with excise tax relief from the government, um, those those bottled, refrigerated, and branded low entry price, um, locally locally content source content, those brands are are given an excise tax relief from the governments and. And uh, that brings the price almost to parity with the poor product that's been traditional. And it's helped those, those new brands grow at a very, very fast rate. In fact, it, it surfaces a theme that, has, that plays across most of our companies, um, uh, which is the uh, companies, uh, as, they, as they kind of grade themselves for ESG purposes and sustainability purposes, you know, this is a perfect sustainability story because the... Um, the uh, farmers uh, who, who grow the cassava and who grow the um, uh, uh, um, uh, sorghum are locals, and they would otherwise have gone into dangerous cities. And they stay in the country. They they grow other cash crops, and, and they start having businesses. And the businesses give them funds that they can invest. So, uh, and they all trade up out of that horrible product that was quite lethal to many. And so, um, governments throughout Sub-Sahara have given uh, excise tax relief just like they've given support to MasterCard, uh, as MasterCard over the years has used its stored value card increasingly to receive the social benefits that single mothers with kids historically got through um, checks, checks that were often uh, cashed at very high charges. The third of the check often is lost. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's it's a, a check that once you cleared the, the two thirds that's left over, the uh, father of your children will come by and ask for his third, and by the time you make your way back to the village, you've missed two days of work, and you get a third of what the government promised. And so that uh, the 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 alternative the Mastercards come up with is that they 
they can download um, uh, remotely into a stored value card or a stored value of telephone from the Mempisa, um, the full value of the benefits, which go to the mother uh, and, and is shared to support the four kids. It's a much, much better um, solution than, than the, the, the existing historic one. Similarly, um, there are countries of the world, as you can imagine, that, that have a, a tax avoidance culture. Um, uh, I understand that included would be India in a very serious way and also South Korea. And it's my understanding that in South Korea, um, the, the, lar the largest penetration of, uh, of uh, payment systems to commerce exists because the government mandates business transactions be done electronically over, over the payment systems. And, and they do that because they want to enforce uh, tax compliance. Because if they can get uh, records uh, from uh, transactions that are mandated to be, um, to be uh, um, uh, digital, uh, they can then they can get, go after to collect on taxes, and so um, in many instances we have uh, we have in the developing emerging markets the ability to have our interests, commercial interests, coincide with governmental interests. Uh, stay at the farm, uh, you know, uh, pay taxes, and a host of others that uh, help drive uh, the future of uh, ret returns from the monies that our companies redeploy. Um, and so, you know, summarize the broad, broad issues. You know, what, what you really want to do is avoid uh, uh, realizing gains if you can find businesses that give you the capacity to reinvest. Not all companies can. Many businesses don't return adequately on, on capital, and they shouldn't receive reinvestments. Um, managements uh, are going to have to find um, the uh, way in which they can invest for the longest term. And the, and the, and the last... Uh, let me just see here. By yeah, so the um, the one way that we have found to help us align our interests with managements um, that are uh, supported by by owners in a way that allows them to invest for the long term is we end up partnering with family controlled companies. Over fifty percent of our holdings are in businesses where the founding families still control the companies. Um, and, uh, and and it, it rewards us in a, numerous ways. Uh, families have no particular interest in maximizing earnings per share. They're interested in maximizing long-term value per share, which is exactly what my investors want of me. And so we can, we can partner with the right family and businesses that have the capacity for reinvestment and, and know that our shares plus family shares help to provide management with the ability to suffer through the downturns that they would otherwise have to uh, neglect uh, if they weren't able to um, um, invest for the longest term. And uh, so uh, Berkshire Hathaway is the best example of that. Uh, you know, he, uh, with, with complete control, Mr. Buffett spent his entire career looking only for businesses that grew the intrinsic value on a per share basis. No other games played at Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and he's compounded money at a fantastic rate uh, with that mindset. Um, uh, the Brown family at Brown Foreman uh, uh, pledged to only grow their global spirits business at some point when we met them in 1986. And they've set about doing that in the business that was 3 million cases of Jack Daniels when I met with the family that runs the company in, in the 1986. Um, today is, is over 
over 14 million cases of, uh, of Jack Daniels. Um, and, uh, and all along the way, as they grew that business internationally, you understand that any market that does less than 50,000 um, cases in the marketplace um, loses money because they lack scale and they have to build infrastructure uh, up front before volumes are, are, are recurring. And so over the course of the period that I've owned Brown Foreman, they've gone from I think three three markets with over fifty thousand cases to forty markets with over fifty thousand cases, and um, that's a hundred thousand cases. Excuse me, they have a smaller number, but the fast growing one of 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 a million cases. And so we are um, we are uh, very much uh, in 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 um, partnership with families throughout our portfolio. Um, the last thing. We believe we get from the family control portfolios is that they tend to have lower valuations, um, and that's because people know stories. Uh, everyone you knows stories of family control companies which have absolutely imploded, or they've been run by idiot nephews, and you know they're stealing stealing from the public shareholders uh, by by transfer pricing uh, irregularities and so on and so forth. If you get the wrong family, in other words, um, it is absolutely uh, certain that you'll lose your money. But if you get the right family, it's it's possible that they'll provide the right environment of long term mindedness that could deliver um, the results that we've seen in the companies I've highlighted thus far. Um, people often ask, how can you tell the difference? Is it possible to know the difference between a good and bad family? The answer is yes. Um, you have uh, you have the example of um, of uh, of the cable business. Uh, there's a, a company called Adelphia Cable years ago, a Pennsylvania-based cable company, and you had a company called Comcast, uh, Pennsylvania-based cable company. They are both family-controlled. In the case of of Adelphia, the family was was dipping uh, personally in the uh, in the uh, piggy bank. They were. Competing against the company, they were they were supplying it at inflated prices. They were, in short, they were really pillaging the company. And um, and as I visited that company, thinking that it, you know it's family controlled, maybe alignment of interest is a good business. Certainly, you could reinvest a lot of money in the cable business. Um, I realized by visiting the management of the company that there were very few standout, skilled, and 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 uh, strongly talented uh, professionals. And it's a dead giveaway. So if you ever think you want to invest in, in, in family control companies, um, take a look at, at the talent who goes there. Because in the case of Comcast, the talent was extraordinary. They wanted to be with the, the, the number one leading cable company in, in the country. They wanted to be technological leaders. They wanted to have uh, entertainment packages that, that drew in consumers with, uh, with great joy. Everything was driven for the the absolute perfection of competition and, and, and success. Um, the team at Adelphia were entirely uh, sort of backbenchers. Um, and uh, and so we made our decision. It was based on Adelphia went bankrupt and Comcast has gone on to create quite a large amount of value. Um, I'd, I'd take a, a break and ask if you have any initial questions uh, from the audience. Definitely. Looks like we have a, a couple here that we Please can do. jump in here, yep. um, kind of look at. So we, we looked at, or you, you brought up a, a couple different consumer kind of brand industries that you're, you're pretty happy with, that you've seen some success with. Are there any out there that you're worried about moving forward or that kind of scare you looking at them? 
Oh boy. Um, you know, uh, I, I'd say, I'd say what I'm intrigued with are some, somewhere where I, I'm not involved with them and, uh, and I've underrated them, uh, as possible places with very sticky, um, and very enduring uh, franchise value. And um, I can think of one company which we visited a couple of summers ago called uh, Tencent, which owns one of the leading global electronic gaming businesses. Uh, and uh, and they, also, they also compete with Alibaba as the number two digital powerhouse in, in China. So you sort of have both businesses and 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 I and I'm intrigued by the gaming business. I think it's very sticky, and I think it has all the characteristics that we would look for. It's just completely outside uh, any frame of reference that we've had historically. But by way of thinking, it's it's highly branded. It's it's full of passionate consumers, uh, whose who, whose belief is that they 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 can't live without their products and their games. And so that's a fairly high order re um, you know um, business, and it's one that. Um, I, I keep an eye on and am interested in, uh, um, you know, I think all, so many of the digital companies uh, have aspects of what it is that we care for. We end up owning Google. Um, and, and one of the things that people often ask me is, do you like family controlled companies? Aren't you running out of them because they get acquired or the family goes, um, goes uh, south? And, and one of the great stories of Silicon Valley is how they've harnessed their own non-voting shares in a way to give companies like um, uh, Google, the capacity to take steps that might trounce earnings reported in search for big breakthroughs like Google Maps or, or the, the cloud or, or possibly um, Venmo or any number, of, uh, not Venmo, but the, uh, the car business, um, any number of, 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 of interesting and wonderful companies uh, within, within um, uh, Google, all spending like mad uh, they have the capacity to reinvest. So, and and they have the long-term mindedness that comes from that shareholder uh, support. So, within the world of technology, there's there are characteristics that are very similar to the consumer brands. You know, people are loyal to the uh, resubscription of of, uh, of renewals on, on on software, and and so there there are other areas that we have historically um, uh, not had direct involvement with, but we're interested in extending into. Definitely. And you brought up um, some some luxury jewelry, and there were a couple yeah. a couple questions um, just regarding kind of luxury products in general, and whether yeah. you had any thoughts on companies like Ferrari or Aston Martin with those kind of high dollar luxury brand items. Yeah, that's you know clearly clearly Ferrari is is an icon. You know, for Ferrari the trademark. You know, separate separate. If there was never a fast-moving car again made under that name, the franchise is still worth billions of dollars because it has such a romance. It just evokes such passion. Um, Aston Martin, far less, but uh, but um, um, we, you know, I, I, I guess my, my my own read on that was that it it was a, um, a luxury that. Um, may not have conveyed over into the return on the actual manufacturing of those cars, um, the kind of returns that you would, you would expect and that you would think that you could grow. Um, uh, they pre-sold most of the cars, I think, for quite a long time. And, uh, and it's not the sort of, 
thing that I think can become ubiquitous. Um, it can become bigger, but but um, I think it would be measured growth. We have some very very thoughtful investment colleagues who who own it, and uh, and and you can certainly understand the case, which is as simple as it's the, one of the most powerful brands, consumer brands in existence, and you should be able to figure out a way to make money off that. In addition to the core business of uh, of, um, of uh, race cars. So, you know, that nothing much beyond that other than there is this exogenous factor that uh, under a carbon neutral world where people are increasingly responsible, that it's conceivable that that some of the, the, the fun of that business goes away. We just just as a very quick aside, I did own um, a very meaningful position in International Speedway, which is the American version in some ways. It, it controls NASCAR. And um, and we, we held those shares for quite a long time. It ended up being a business that was somewhat, uh, it was uh, uh, fraught by, in some ways, overbuilding because, you know, those businesses tend to be very special. The acclaimed, you know, Daytona 500 site, the acclaimed um, Rockingham site. Um, but if you put in 25 new racetracks, the 26 that goes up is no longer acclaimed. It's just another place for, you know, uh, uh, you know, another race. And so it's the cachet that you have to preserve. And in the case of, of International Speedway, which we did own, um, they lost that uh, cachet, I think. And, uh, and, 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 and Ferrari is, is, is valuable by, beyond all measure by virtue of that powerful franchise. Definitely. And the, the last kind of one here before we can move on, uh, yeah. when we're, we're looking at some of those, uh, highly successful uh, kind of alcohol industry players. Yes. Uh, specifically, a lot of uh, whiskey and bourbon um, kind of dominating the market recently. Yeah. yeah. Are there any concerns uh, about consumer taste kind of moving away from whiskey to a different liquor like vodka or tequila, anything like that? Yes. And if there weren't, the, the, the person... Um, with whom you were speaking probably didn't know the business well because they've rotated. There's just been a, there's a constant evolution. At one time, I, it, it's possible that North America had, it's it maybe something as startling as 24 million cases of Irish whiskey sold here uh, a year um, in the U.S. Uh, back in the sort of before the, the prohibition and during prohibition, the whole swirl around the prohibition um Drop that business all the way down to two or three million cases. It was it was at once the, the sort of the mainstream beverage, and it went away almost entirely. Now it's owned by Jamesons, which is owned by one of our portfolio companies. Um, at the moment, gin is on an absolute tear, as is is um, as is uh, uh, um, tequila and uh, premium, and, and and the story in each of those categories is that the greatest demand is at the very highest premium. During this pandemic, uh, one of the interesting things was that, um, you know, for a long time, on-premise has been closed. And uh, I know it's close to uh, 50% of high-end spirits are consumed on-premise. And that's where new brands are developed with, with bartender rollout programs and all of the rest. And, and so what happened is people ended up off-premise purchasing the same brands that they would otherwise call for on-premise. But they kept they kept increasing what they were prepared to pay because by 
drinking at home, they didn't pay the same price per drink as at a, at a fancy uh, a nightclub or restaurant. And so instead at the, at their in-home purchases went from standard Jack Daniels to Jack Daniels, gentleman Jack to you know, triple Jack. And, and so in each of those, there was a trading up and, and we're living through that experience right now. Um, today's marketplace with the, with the threatened, second closure of, of, of restaurants uh, for a month in European countries has um, has had its toll on 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 that right now because again it goes back from you know the on-premise which is where where fashions are set and you go back to the um, to the um, uh, closed stores you'll have to buy off-premise we'll see I, I actually think the market showed how vigorous it was um, uh, during the last downturn um, uh, and 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 that the um, we'll see what happens with the market, but the but there is as we speak this very minute um, con, it's a, a cross currents because of the possibility of shutdowns. Pandemic, you know, continues to rear its head. For sure. Well, I think those will kind of cover the the more specific questions yes. pertaining to what we've covered so far. So we can go ahead and knock the rest of the presentation out here, and then we can jump into some more generalized questions. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And um, so the um, let's just take a look at where I left you. Well, we, when we, we, we expanded on this particular slide on the concept of family-controlled companies. By the way, one of the interesting things is almost all, most of the spirits companies remain family-controlled means that they have the kind of mindset that you would like, which is to develop the brains for the longer term. Uh, and it also shows you just how cash flow positive those businesses are. If you can imagine a Jack Daniels, 150-year-old company, and um, and the family today still controls it. You know, most times companies, as they grow, are forced by the founders to sell their shares, to fund the equity portion required to build out factories and, and grow the business. The the, uh, the cash generation from the spirits business has been so great that many of the best firms in the industry are still family controlled, which, which makes our interest in aligning with them higher. Um, uh, some of the other things, last things that Buffett shared with our with our group is he said basically you should figure out what you're good at and stay within your circle of competence. And for me at least, it's a belief that we have some value to add in the the global consumer. He suggested you concentrate with few great ideas. We tend to be fairly concentrated. The top three companies are just under 40% of the assets. Tax efficiency, we talked about, you know, so long as you don't sell, you're not going to pay taxes on the gains. And uh, and recognize that volatility is a long-term investor's friend. And, and, and one of the hallmarks that Berkshire has done so well at is he's had the ability to do nothing. He has the willingness to do anything and the ability to do nothing, which has made him such a ferocious investor. The uh, ability, the willingness to do anything shows up in something like the uh, one of the ideas I was going to highlight uh, in 2008 when it all was uh, so uh, troubled at um, uh, in the banking industry. Warren was offered a $6 billion, 6% preferred by Bank of America. And at the time, interest rates were one and a half percent. So the, the yield on the preferred was already generous, but was really generous as they gave him on top of that 230 million um, uh, call options that were 10 years long and that struck at market value. So they struck at $7 per, um, per um, uh, warrant. 
and the shares were priced at seven dollars per warrant. So on top of getting the preferred dividend, he also received the two hundred thirty-one million uh, warrants. He ended up converting those, um, and and they hit at peak um, thirty billion dollars of gain from that um, from that conversion. It was uh, extraordinary, and uh, and he was willing to do it. Um, uh, he's and, and at the same time, he has the ability to do nothing. As we've seen over the um, over the uh, most recent period, um, when when his cash has stayed largely in his um, in his pocket, uh, I gave you the, the first example. There was the uh, uh, was the um, well, it's not on this, but the but the Berkshire Hathaway was uh, the um, the uh, preferred stock. Uh, Geico is an interesting one to speak a moment about. Um, when when Warren had the opportunity to buy Geico, they only had a million subscribers, uh, insureds at the time he purchased the company. And the two key variables there is that um, uh, the um, operating income per uh, insured is $150 a month, a year, excuse me, $150 a year. And um, it costs uh, $250 uh, a of upfront expense to put on board a new um, a new uh, um, insured, and so um, what happens is that for every new insured that, that they put on at the cost of two hundred and fifty dollars, um, the operating income uh, would drop from one hundred and fifty to minus one hundred, and so Geico had to pace its growth in, in a slow enough fashion. Uh, before they were acquired by Berkshire, that they would still show uh, smooth and steady growth in operating income rather than to have a $250 loss um, reported cost for, for onboarding wipe out the $150 worth of income that one gets uh, from their insured. Um, but uh, under Berkshire's ownership, uh, Geico's management was asked at once, um, what would you do differently? He said, well, we'd, we would uh, grow the business and, and Pay no regard to the uh, two hundred fifty dollars upfront cost because it's just a one year cost, and the persistency of these insured um, Geico uh, uh, clients is uh, you know, decades long. And so, with long, long lived uh, loyalties, you end up with a present value of a, a new insured of fifteen hundred dollars. Back at the time he bought it, the um, the operating income burden was converted a. Two hundred fifty dollars of profit, so minus one hundred, and uh, and 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 Warren understood that it was far more valuable to focus on growing those high net present value customers than to worry about the operating income burden caused by the uh, caused by the onboarding expense. That's just the mindset, the mindset that Berkshire has so well uh, 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 delivered against, uh, which is to favor wealth creation over reported profits. Uh, you know, brands are important. Weedabix was a brand that my wife was um, uh, uh, fond of as a grew up in England. And uh, it's it was a um, very solid, uh, dominant player in the food industry in breakfast cereal. Uh, and uh, we ended up, it was family controlled, and uh, we ended up with 20% of the company when it was taken over. But during the or during the life of the holding, they invested back in the business and they let the cash build. They did not have the capacity to reinvest, and they recognized that that's the most important thing. So by the time it was acquired over the 20 years of our ownership, the cash on the balance sheet went from 
um, from 19 million, uh, 19, let's just see here, cash on the balance sheet went from seven, $7.1 million to 105 million pounds, excuse me, it's pounds. So that growth in retained cash, uh, you know, is, is, is actually in some sense a pitfall of a private family controlled company is that uh, normally you might consider taking that 105 million, which will likely not be spent and buying back the shares. They had 11.8 million shares outstanding the whole period of time. And the shares um, after the sort of during the internet bubble of 1999, the shares dropped from, you can see here, a high of 47, and the shares dropped all the way down to $19 a share in 2003 when, when they were acquired, uh, at which time they were, they were acquired at, I think, roughly uh, seven, seven to eight times EBITDA plus the cash. And, uh, and, and it was, uh, it was, uh, it, the, the hallmark of this was their discipline over not being uh, subject to investment banker treat, uh, pleads to invest that hundred where, where it would not have added a value. And so, um, it, it was a pretty, um, interesting investment experience, especially given the fact that the product, Weedabix, is, is almost, uh, unpalatable to American tastes. But that's, uh, neither here nor there. It was, it was, um, very favorable to third taste. I say that they, the shareholder needed the capacity to suffer because as they went through the period of the internet bubble, the, the price of the shares collapsed at the same time as the intrinsic value kept growing. And then finally, Two years later, with the acquisition, they basically bought the business at the intrinsic value. Um, another capacity reinvest uh, impression comes from what I mentioned of the brewing industry, where in, in sub-Saharan Africa, you had this, uh, uh, this uh, 400 million uh, barrel consumption with only 100 million barrels of, um, of uh, Western quality beer, which led to the observation on the part of S.A.B. Miller that instead of thinking about Africa, where they had long had fact, uh, breweries, as a source of distributable cash because they were worried about governments, they were worried about the economies, they were worried about uh, 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 religious wars, polit politics, a host of other reasons, the, um, the parent company, South African Breweries, thought of this whole region as a source of cash that they could that they could then deploy around the world. And one day the head of the South African business realized that in fact the prosperity and the, the rising standards of income and the and the desire to badge and to be um, and to drink modern chilled uh, branded products was growing at a fast rate. So the company SAB uh, reversed courses and started to invest uh, aggressively. And they invested so aggressively that you can see on the next page that they began uh, to, to, to destroy their operating, their EBITDA margin. So in the, in, in the pursuit of this investment, you can see here on the far left that the growth rate was, um, was, was quite dramatic um, uh, as the individual realized when he reversed the course of, of drawing money away from those businesses into pushing it back towards them. So they invested in, in, in breweries and distilleries and, and, and distribution, and it showed up in terms of the volumes that they drove, the revenues that they drove, but you can see what happened to their EBITDA margin. It went to, from 20 all the way down to 16, 
And that's not because they weren't doing a good job. It was because they were doing a great job. Uh, and all that ability to reinvest um, up front as quickly as they reversed to, to, to drive meant that um, the operating inefficiencies of the startup uh, of these uh, simultaneous markets uh, drew down the EBITDA margin. And if they didn't have strong um, ownership support by the founding family and by other long-term minded investors, uh, a manager would see that kind of collapse in EBITDA and worry about his job or her job uh, for fear of the um, for fear of the pattern that makes it look like they're doing a poor job when in fact they were doing a great job. The truth is the 18% margin that you showed through here was actually continuing to grow like that. And uh, the reported margin simply said that, yes, it's growing like that, but we're spending so much money that it only shows this much. And so we look for that type of, uh, of uh, activity of spending in advance of, uh, of the future. And then, and then, um, uh, Nestle, Nestle is one of the great long-term, um, thinking companies. They have a portfolio of billion dollar brands and each of those brands has its own market, which they can absorb more capital. So they're constantly reinvesting in, internally. And when I first invested in 1986, um, you know, Wall Street was so deplorable, deploring them for not having a faster growth rate because of their, their investments. This, this chart shows how with rising incomes, the consumption of branded goods goes, goes up uh, over, over time. Um, and uh, the, um, Anyway, so Nestle's response to uh, man uh, management questions from Wall Street: What are they going to do five years from now? Uh, they they were they, they they basically said they would continue to invest. And the the analyst said, um, "How do you think about investing?" They said, "Well, we think about uh, investing um, uh, in in uh, over thirty five years, but we break it down in five year increments." And it really showed their capacity to suffer when they when they launched Nespresso, which has become a very powerful franchise for them um, it had been it had been um, discontinued in the in the development phase three or four times because it was causing such losses as they were building it and it took 15 years for the product to break even uh, and and they were willing to underwrite that because they knew that it would help defend their Nespresso business and the Nescafe business and and their other coffee businesses as well as uh, put uh, put competitors out of the picture by being the first mover. There are a lot of investment activities on the part of Nestle there. Um, the one that we didn't get a chance to really go over, I think it's probably better to go back to questions. Um, uh, well, the, the Brazilian ones was, is interesting. It shows, it shows the virtue of, uh, of discipline. So Heineken was offered uh, to buy um, uh, for $5 billion dollars the um, Brazilian beer business that had been bought by um, by um, uh, um, Kieran. Uh, so Kieran Kieran had had acquired um, Kieran had been approached by by the seller of a, a, a brewery in, in Brazil. Uh, the the offered price was five billion dollars. Heineken looked at it and said, "No way, it's too expensive." Wall Street clamored for Heineken to buy it because they had a successful business selling green bottle uh, premium beer, and they were growing that business rapidly. And, and Wall Street thought that they had to buy uh, the business that was about a 13% market shareholder. Heineken had 13% market share. So in theory, both together would be 26%. They'd go up against um, uh, uh, Ambev, 
with a with a stronger profile as two companies that aggregate 26% business. Um, Heineken was implored by Wall Street to buy this business, and they said it, it's too expensive. They passed. Kieran paid five billion for it, uh, and then five years later came back to the market to sell it because they couldn't make it work. Heineken came in and, and took a look, and, and the, the sellers were asking seven hundred million dollars for the business. And Heineken said, "You know, yeah, that sounds fine." And so they they basically said no, and Wall Street clamored them to pay five billion. They said yes when Wall Street said, "Don't even touch it since it had fallen apart." Heineken bought it for seven hundred million, knowing that they put in another billion, and that other billion would cause them to have some margin pressures. Heineken's family controlled fifty point one percent of the businesses owned by the family. Um, they they closed on it. They did buy that business. It did start to do well. In fact, it did so well that uh, an interesting uh, risk developed, and that was that um, Heineken had promised the the, the investment world that they would have operating cost savings of about 50 basis points a year. And um, after they bought this Brazilian business and started to clean it up, they had, um, they had a period where their beer volumes grew so, so much faster than anybody expected um, that uh, they, they ended up uh, preventing Heineken to show that 50 basis point margin improvement because of all the burden on, on, on margin that was caused by the fast growth of the business they bought in Brazil. So basically, the Brazilian business outperformed so drastically their original thoughts that they couldn't um, uh, offset the um, the operating margin differential. So um, uh, Wall Street you know, saw that uh, that, uh, that that as bad news as opposed to good news, which in fact it was, and uh, they sold the shares down ten percent um, on the day that they announced that they missed the operating margin expansion because Brazil, the business that that Wall Street told them never to touch, had done so well. It, it, Wall Street has a very um, strange way of, of rewarding conduct. I'm going to stop. Um, I'm going to welcome any other questions. Uh, if anybody has some, and uh, we'll spend the rest of the time that you've got together. Definitely. So we'll go ahead and jump into a couple more generalized questions. Sure. Here, just to kind of round things out. Um, when looking to evaluate the, the quality of a business, what what are the primary metrics you're considering and how much of a role does return on invested capital play when looking at those companies? Well, I think I think that plays um, that plays a very high role. Um, I think what we we tend to look for, as I as I frame this this presentation, is the very first thing we want to know is how big an opportunity might it be. As you see, I said you know payment systems, eighty five percent of the market is outside of your business, so. Um, you know, if you invest in that market properly, you have an enormous growth runway in front of you by by merely taking more of that um, addressable market that may not have yet even been served by a, a by, by a competitor. And so, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about how big is the opportunity, um, uh, and and then is is there any reason why our business has a possible um, uh, justification for succeeding in that market. And then we end up with these global businesses that have global brands that have actually been present in the developing markets for decades, for hundreds of years, 
so the brand awareness where our businesses operate is extremely high, and that gives us a reason to succeed um, uh, by investing against uh, businesses that are already aspirational in nature uh, by their brands. And uh, so size of market, any particular reason to win, um, any um, um, you know, benefits that might come our way, such as the, uh, the uh, reduction in excise taxes in beer and spirits in Africa, the, um, the uh, privilege that we receive by working with the, the uh, countries around the world through, uh, through uh, MasterCard. So uh, we're looking for reasons why then our actual capital amount committed um, is favorable. And we often find that there's some wrinkle like we saw with Tencent or we saw with, not, not Tencent, but we saw with uh, South Korea and MasterCard. And then your know, return on invested capital uh, is obviously is obviously what we spend our, our most of our time thinking about. But but one of the things that we we understand is that um, you know you're going to go through a life cycle on the on the returns on invested capital, and uh, if you pass on something simply because the early stages of the life cycle will will show negative returns on your invested capital, you're probably underspending if you if you in fact take a long term point of view. So. Um, we would, within our businesses, have massive amounts of businesses that, as I said, operate above rated capacity and show unhealthy returns on capital because the risk of injury, the risk of product breaking, the risk of product quality failure, all those things that come when something's operating at too high, high a stake um, um, means that that extraordinarily high invested capital mal, uh, margin um, is actually a presage to something going bad uh, at, at, if it's allowed to continue. Most of our companies end up coming back in with more capital to put an additional capital so that looking out a few years, they'll pull from the at-risk, though high ROIC generating uh, divisions um, uh, volume so that they can go back to a, a more sustainable level. And that, that's something I think we add enormous value to. Uh, when we when we tell management that we're absolutely indifferent as to whether or not the the invested capital goes down, uh, the other thing that people talk about, uh, and we actually have a completely different view on, is the notion of uh, cash flow conversion ratio. Um, most investors focus on that highly, and they want to show they want to see very low cash flow conversion ratio, which means that they're the, the businesses are sending back to the investors. Through dividends and share purchases, um, massive amounts of what they're otherwise earning. And we actually want businesses that have zero uh, cash flow conversion ratio to the extent that they keep everything because they have the ability to redeploy capital. And, and very often that redeployment takes place initially at very low returns on invested capital. So, but, but if the single mandate is either get a cash flow conversion ratio that drives you to send everything out, no investment, um, or to, to, to linger with, with, with an un, unsustainable ROIC because of, of, of excess capacity utilization. Um, we think both of those models end up harmful long-term. And at some level, you know, the, whole, the whole story behind parts of the, um, the uh, 3G story um, uh, led, you know, because of its focus on getting rid of non-essential costs, um, um, if taken to an extreme, leads to a massively high return on invested capital uh, 
but a business that that might lack the capacity to respond and also to invest to develop something like a brand. For sure. And when looking at companies, obviously you have a very global focus that covers, you know, brands within brands within brands. Do you look at companies that have a, a more generalized focus or something with more of kind of a, a niche focus within a specific market? So the, the example that was given was Biogen with their pretty specific focus on actual medical process within like Alzheimer's and targeting specific diseases. Well, um, yes. Uh, good question. Um, most most of our businesses end up having one or two competitors. Um, so you know, Heineken competes largely against um, AB InBev and and uh, increasingly around the world, um, uh, uh, Carlsberg from from uh, Europe and um, and uh, and and so our businesses are are pretty focused on on within that global map of competitors. Um, Finding out where where they get the best returns from having their own dominant share, and it, it really is in the consumer world uh, critically important to have the distribution economics that um, favor the um, market leader. So they're pretty focused on on sustainable um, market share in markets where if they find that they get a breakaway share. They'll in, they'll earn higher returns um, if they discipline the market properly, and those higher returns are used then to plow back into innovation and into um, product development that can help secure their dominance in specific regions. I'm not sure that that is to your question of whether or not our businesses are are target focused focused on on one specific therapeutical outcome. They typically aren't. They typically aren't. They're typically focused on on um, market share, which drives more margin for reinvestment, that drives the development of products that delight, that can gain more market share. And, and the interesting new variable in all this, uh, many of these comments that I've shared with your colleagues, I, I've shared years ago, but the, the, the disruptive, the thing that's changed everything, uh, the thing that makes all of these businesses different um, is digital. It's digital. It's the ability for all, all the, so many businesses to get to the consumer through e-commerce, um, to have payment systems that are that are perfectly reliable. Um, they have pipes that are fast, um, that that are reliable. All the things that were promised that could come from a world like this in 1999 and 2000 have actually arrived. I mean, there's so many transformative ways in which advertising is is maximized for its efficiency and. Um, and uh, and uh, commerce is conducted with an omni omni channel perspective, which is both digital and on premise and in pop ups and any number of different ways. But but digital has been the vast disruptor, and it's, it is the vast transformational force that um, all of our businesses are harnessing, and, and some of our businesses are helping to develop. Definitely. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. And to to round things out here. Uh, we had a question come in with hundreds to thousands of companies under management at any given time. How do you keep track of 
which one of those are good investments coming in and which ones you need to get rid of? Um, well, it's, it's through a tremendous amount of, of, of reading and for us travel and interaction with, with managements of the companies that we have stakes in. And, and one of the byproducts of both all three of those is that we get read across information that's pretty good. So, um, just, uh, um, uh, just today, uh, we had a, a call with Verizon, which is an interesting company and, and, and who has an internet, um, um, a pipeline of great considerable value. And the question really was how much, uh, in the read across is the demand for what you have expressed the same amount of demand that we're seeing up in the cloud by the three cloud leaders. Um, and uh, we didn't get a particularly deep answer to the question, but it's the sort of question we certainly will ask. Um, uh, each time we meet with the management of a company, we, we at some point are also hearing about the competitive landscape and dynamics um, as they see um, the game being played away from them as well as on their own field. And so that that is really valuable to understand um, uh, from from the people we admire, who else is is long term minded? Who else has the capacity to, you know, re redeploy capital, reinvest, and, and do so even when it hurts? Um, you know, we we look for evidence of that in the companies that we go at go at to visit with, and then we learn from them about others that are similarly disposed. Definitely. Well, Thomas, thank you for joining us today. It's it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you. It was a, a wonderful presentation that you gave to us. We were very happy to feature you on here and to get all thank those you. great answers for our audience. And for that audience out there, um, if you enjoyed what you saw today, we hope you go ahead and take a moment to give the video a like and subscribe to the channel so you can keep up with all the great content we're putting out here. And we hope that everyone can stay safe and stay healthy out there. And we hope to see you joining us on the next one. So thank you, everybody. And we hope you have a good day out there. Thank you, Graham. Thank you for the chance to speak. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Value Investing Live. If you haven't joined one of our live streams before, check us out on YouTube and register for the events on gurufocus.com. If it's your first time hearing of us, click the link in the bio for a free seven-day trial of Guru Focus where you can test out all of our great tools and features. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.